Welcome to Leadership Dialogues, a podcast for the greater New Orleans region. Leadership Dialogues is produced by the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, a nonprofit which provides a variety of nonpartisan platforms to inspire and engage business and community leaders in the greater New Orleans region. Hi, my name is Stephen Ruther, and welcome to Leadership Dialogues. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina in fall of 2005, students from across southeast Louisiana were devastated by the immediate and dramatic shift in their academic experience. Some were forced to enroll in new schools, some came back to makeshift classrooms, and all were challenged to cope with the disruption that defined their school experience for years to come. In the wake of COVID-19, we again face an immediate and dramatic shift in academic experience, but this time we have no physical or structural damage. Additionally, the technology has changed, and as opposed to limited geographical impact, school systems across the state and country all face extraordinary circumstances and unclear paths forward. In this podcast, we will hear from two individuals on the front lines of innovation and decision-making in response to COVID-19 and its impact on education. While these individuals represent New Orleans public schools, Their challenges and thoughtful approaches typify the outstanding efforts of school districts and system leaders in Southeast Louisiana. In what is one of the most unique school systems in the United States, and with uncertainty and inequity as hallmarks of this crisis, they are leading with vision, compassion, and judiciousness. Mr. Ethan Ashley is the District 2 board member for Orleans Parish Public Schools and currently serves as president of the board. He obtained a Bachelor of Science in Political Science and a Juris Doctorate from Howard University in Washington, D.C. While there, he worked for Congresswoman Maxine Waters, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division Criminal Section, and the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. After graduating from law school, Mr. Ashley moved to New Orleans as a staff attorney and project director at the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana. Following that, he worked as the New Orleans Director for the Black Alliance for Educational Options and then as the Director of Community Engagement for the Urban League of Greater New Orleans. Currently, Ethan is the Director of Policy and Advocacy for the Louisiana Children's Research Center for Development and Learning. Mr. Ashley has served in a plethora of leadership and board service capacities for several organizations, including Youth Ranola, the Louis A. Martinet Legal Society, the Youth Study Center in New Orleans, Son of a Saint, Bard Early College New Orleans, Boy Scouts of America Southeast Louisiana Council, and the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute. Ethan is a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, is a 2014 Fellow of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation's Community Leadership Network, a 2018 graduate of Norley, and the creator of the New Orleans Black Male Achievement Network, as well as an educational leadership program called Urban Leaders for Equity and Diversity. He's the proud co-owner of J.E. Howard Ventures, and he is a member of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. We're also joined by Dr. Kelly Peterson, who serves as a Chief Portfolio Innovation and Accountability Officer for NOLA Public Schools. She is responsible for the charter authorization process, accountability for charter schools, portfolio innovation and strategy, and building capacity for charter boards. Dr. Peterson has served as an elementary teacher, middle school teacher, school administrator, and district charter school authorizer. Her efforts to alleviate inadequate educational opportunities and experiences for students of color is embedded within the equity, accountability, and charter authorizing work and is the core of her role. Dr. Peterson earned her BS from Spelman College, Master's in Education from University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and Doctorate of Education from Tennessee State University. She is currently a member of Norley's Regional Leadership Program. Dr. Peterson and Mr. Ashley joined me this past Friday, April 10th, to discuss the Orleans Parish Public School System, as well as the ongoing response to COVID-19 and its overall impact to education within the state of Louisiana. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So just earlier this week, uh, superintendents across the state um, approached uh, Governor John Bell Edwards about extending his school's closure order Uh, until the end of the academic school year. Currently, as it stands, uh, that order is only in place until April 30th. Um, There's been some indications that the governor does, in fact, have some intention of potentially extending that, but obviously we don't know anything yet. 
but assuming he will go ahead and extend it, what does that mean for uh, graduation for so many seniors uh, across the state, as well as just students of all ages? What does the closure um, for the end of the school year look like for them? That's a great question. And I, I'll tell you from the vantage point of the school district uh, in Orleans Parish, our superintendent uh, has been very clear uh, that there will be a celebration for the class of 2020 uh, when there is, when a celebration is available to be had for them. Uh, I will admit uh, that he has a personal um, stake in this. He has a graduating senior uh, this year. And so, you know, I think for him, it has become very much so personal and, um, you know, professional in terms of the work that needs to be done. And in this moment, I think he keeps talking about the need for, and I think all of our staff members, including Kelly, uh, talks about the need to make sure that we're celebrating and providing norms for our young people in this particular moment of crises where there's not a lot of normal stuff that's happening. And we know how, and I think we'll get there at some point in time in this conversation, uh, the, how important it is to be able to provide normal um, during these crises and, and especially when mental health is so exacerbated in terms of the, the supports for our young people. So, you know, I, I will say that I think at, at the base, we're definitely thinking about how we can celebrate our, our 2020 graduates in some form or fashion. Um, in terms of, uh, I think, the deeper supports that we're looking at in terms of our seniors, I know the KP and team have been looking to make sure that we're providing and supporting our seniors with everything that they need to move on to, to matriculate into their next phase of life. And I'll actually let KP take it away about some of the things that's happening at the district level. Yeah, so from a more uh, kind of technical standpoint, the LDOE released some guidance for schools guarding specifically seniors. Um, then in alignment with that guidance, we also at NOLA Public Schools then created a framework for our schools to follow just to help them begin to kind of think through all the guidance. Um, it's more of a process. Some of that just overarching is one is that schools have to determine whether or not a student demonstrates proficiency. Um, in their grade level content or their course in order to award credit. So the school is able to have the autonomy to figure out to determine that. Um, students then that meet proficiency, if I'm a senior and my school shows that I demonstrated proficiency in that, uh, the school has then the option to assign either a grade or a pass-fail option. The pass-fail option is new and that's available for seniors for this 2019-2020 spring semester. If a student then, let's say they don't meet that proficiency, that's when schools continue to utilize their online platforms, distance learning, um, remediation, but to get them to meeting that proficiency. Additionally, when we think about the assessment piece, uh, the currently enrolled seniors that need that LEAP 2025 score to be eligible for graduation, that requirement has been waived for seniors that will graduate by August 31st, 2020. So that's kind of in terms of like in the school related to, again, grades and assessment. Outside of that, though, we know obviously ACT. Um, while that's not required as it relates to a condition of graduation, the exam options are being available in June. Um, and these are the ones that will be able to also be utilized still for TOPS eligibility. And the last two opportunities students have to achieve um, a TOPS qualifying score related to ACT. And those, the national administration date, I believe, is uh, June 13th, and then the state administration date has been rescheduled for June 2nd. So, again, making sure those seniors are able to get the ACT scores prior to the end of the year um, as they were previously scheduled for March. Um, and then lastly, FAFSA. That's been waived as a graduation requirement only for seniors that are graduating by August 31st. But as we know, even if it's not a requirement for graduation, a lot of our seniors still need that either for TOPS, but then also other state and federal financial aid as well. Um, so again, the LDOE has a lot of guidance to provide schools related to um, ensuring that seniors are prepared for the next step, um, that transcripts are ready, and that they're able to certify the students for graduation, um, in addition to making some different accommodations for ACT testing to be in June, and then FAST being waived as a graduation requirement. However, it's still available and schools are still supporting uh, students to complete that for those that need it for either TOPS or just other state and federal financial aid. Now, Dr. Peterson, you, you kind of hit on this a little bit. We're talking about um, the assessments that would be done to make sure that students have a certain level of mastery to be able to move on, especially uh, high school seniors. 
But um, at-large schools are foregoing uh, state testing this year, uh, obviously as a result of, of the school closures. For all those other students in, in K through 12, what does that mean for um, their school year this year, as well as teachers and the school districts themselves moving into next year? How, are those, how do those assessments play into the advancement of students from year to year and certainly the sort of appraisal of the work of educators and the school districts throughout the year? What does that mean since we won't have those tools this year? So I think one is just noting that, like, I think it was a very responsive move to get the waiver um, just based on the loss of instruction, instructional days, right? And so that means foregoing school performance scores as well as district performance scores uh, for this year. But as it relates to the impact that it has directly on schools, so while this is a, you know, when you look at the state assessments, it's able to take multiple districts and, and being able to compare apples to apples, right, in terms of everyone taking the same assessment. Um, however, on an individual basis, most schools are taking internal exams already, right? So they have their own benchmark exams. Um, they give them internal data to understand truly where a student is based on their proficiency and mastery of the core content. Um, and so what we'll see, I think, a lot of is our schools really relying on their internal benchmark data that they've been taking of their students to demonstrate growth. Um, and also to determine starting next year where the starting point actually is. And so you'll see a lot of things that might be adjusted from grade to grade. Um, students having some remediation and intervention block schools being very, um, I think, creative about the way in which they plan for their school day. Um, building in different intervention and remediation blocks on the front end, but also being able to utilize those like internal assessments to determine where students and starting and stopping point are. Um, I think you'll see a lot more of that. And so while it won't give us a place to, to kind of compare schools across the state, um, what we will see again is I think inter schools using internal data to really be able to um, remediate and individualize instruction for their students. So I recently let, read that 39 out of the state's 69 school districts have implemented measures for distance learning. And I'll be honest, prior to reading that, I didn't realize that 100% of the districts weren't utilizing some form of distance learning. Um, so I, I guess my question is twofold, which is, number one, how does access to internet and technology impact some students in different parts of the community more than others? Because obviously not everybody has the same access. And then my second part would be for those districts that aren't utilizing that kind of technology and distance learning, how are they getting their lesson plans and, and their curriculum in the hands of students for them to be able to continue their learning when outside of school, when school is closed? So let, let, let me say this, that connectivity is probably one of, of the largest issues uh, that we're not only seeing in Louisiana, but across the country. Uh, the digital divide is something that we have needed to fight for a long time. Uh, and now that COVID-19 is forcing us into isolation, uh, this problem has come to the forefront. Uh, and we know that isolation is harming our more, our more vulnerable young people, uh, our young people who don't necessarily have uh, connectivity in their homes in terms of internet access, broadband access, and then also a device that allows them to get onto the internet to then access uh, virtual learning platforms. And so that is definitely this district's, um, you know, for Orleans Parish, that was one of the biggest things that we wanted to make sure that we were able to help our schools uh, just knock that, that issue out the way. And so one of the first things that we did uh, is that we called for an emergency meeting. Uh, we set aside $5 million, and it was for three buckets, uh, one being uh, sanitation and safety, making sure that we're taking care of our buildings, uh, the other being uh, distance learning, and the last, obviously, is our child nutrition program, which we're very proud of, but to the distance learning piece, we uh, th thus far have, have ordered uh, well, originally we had ordered 5,000 hotspots and 10,000 Chromebooks. And we went in and ordered an additional 3,000 hotspots because we are noting that connectivity, the hotspot piece, making sure that internet is available is one of the things that we are definitely fighting in this moment. And we're relying on a lot of our private companies um, to be able to support us uh, during this time, whether that's Cox or AT&T. Uh, we're seeing a lot of um, coordination that's happening at the city level 
because it's not just a, a, a school thing, uh, but we're also seeing that there is definitely uh, a larger use of uh, the internet in general. Some of our Zoom calls are, are becoming harder to do because more people are on and it's just, and so we're, we're definitely seeing that as an issue. But for our kids uh, and our families, we wanted to make sure that connectivity wasn't uh, one of the issues that they had to fight here locally. Uh, and prior to that, I want to admit, um, because we are, we just got all of our materials in, in terms of our hotspots and Chromebooks and uh, did everything that we needed to do internally to make sure everything is, is, um, is tagged. And, and, and then we sent it out. Prior to that, our schools were stepping up to make sure that for those who, their families who didn't necessarily have um, uh, uh, technology in their home, they were printing out packets uh, at the feeding locations to make sure that there was some form of learning happening and we're very proud of our schools for stepping up in that way. But now, look, I, I'm, I'm going to step away from this question uh, and, and let uh, the doctor speak, uh, because I know there's much more integral work that's happening on the ground level with our educators. Uh, but at the systems level, uh, we, we just wanted to make sure that we did everything we could with the, with the dollars that we were entrusted to ensure that connectivity wasn't a big, huge problem. Uh, but there's more to be said there. Yeah, I think um, adding on to that, going back to kind of this, the idea of like the, the digital divide, right? If you remember, this conversation, I think, kind of came up in terms of students' access to technology when we began to shift to online assessments, right? And there was kind of like this phase and process, but that really was based on schools getting the resources allocated to ensure that they were able to actually test their, uh, their third through uh, eighth grade and then their high school students um, on devices. But no one really had that conversation as it relates to uh, what happens after that or what happens in the home or how do we prep kids for that. Um, and that's a continual conversation that we need to continue to have. You know, there's one thing in terms of giving students the access to the computers. There's another thing that we also have to think through is how many of our students also possess the basic computer literacy skills um, as it relates to being able to really access and dive deep into their instruction online. And so I think this is also going to get us to a place of rethinking education, rethinking um, what does is, what is integrated technology mean in classrooms? What do teachers and how do teachers begin to structure lessons um, on the front end that really get kids to dig in? Again, not just like, let's get on Google, but what does it truly mean to integrate technology into classrooms to get our students more prepared for this? Um, you know, we had schools who are already doing that and some, um, so they had a little bit more ease of being able to, to phase into distance learning. Others, this was new, right? And so there's, there's gonna be some, um, some learning and the learning curve that occurs there. I think it's a conversation that we have to continue. I think at this, in the same vein of that, um, you know, there were some things that we also had to overcome, you know, being understanding of um, what we did for the district related to being able to provide access to our families and students uh, to, to not only the device, but also the hotspot. There seem, there's a definite correlation, you know, we talk about like to access to technology and internet and those devices um, with socioeconomic. I think one of the things that we found in talking to our schools as well as we prepared for the rollout is, um, some of the households that had past due balances with some of the cable companies or credit issues initially were having some issues with being able to even sign up for the free internet access that some of the providers uh, were providing because of those things and were penalizing the households. Um, obviously through conversation, dialogue, um, and urgency, those things have been lifted, but it's definitely still one of those impacts that we have to acknowledge that occurred even in this process. So even thinking through that. And I think in terms of, um, as Ethan stated, we have schools that recognize prior to all of this being started um, at the district began putting out surveys to our schools to understand each of their students um, and the family needs related to technology and access. And so when we began doing that, being able to make sure that schools had plan B. So yes, there's plan A of being able to get online, but also those worksheets and actually packets uh, provided for families at the same time they were coming to pick up meals so students continuously were engaging at work. I think those are some excellent points and, and as a parent of three young children one thing that really sticks out to me that you said is um, again not just having access to the technology and having access to um, the internet to be able to tap into those lesson plans but 
You know, I know for my own three small children, they can't just sign into their classroom meets and go through their Google Docs on their own. I personally have to be able to help them. In addition to that, there's one or two sort of external learning apps that they use where you can post things, you know, that they do throughout the course of the day. And so for parents, it's a steep learning curve as well, potentially. I can tell you prior to, to my children using these apps, I never used them before. And, and they're not always the most user-friendly. They're not horrible, but it is a challenge, right? And so um, if parents want to be able to have a proactive part of their kids' education, really help them with it, um, there's a steep learning curve for those parents as well. Uh, I think a really positive byproduct that I've seen in, in conversations and on social media and things like that is I think people, regardless of where you sit philosophically or politically, are seeing the value and the necessity of having um, universally available internet access. And um, I, I certainly didn't make up this metaphor, but um, you know, to me, it very much is having access to the internet as the equivalent of a modern day library. Um, that is your most fundamental uh, resource for information um, to be able to, you know, achieve an education, be able to operate in the real world. And if anything's come out of COVID-19, it's been um, conversations about this is a necessity for certainly school children, but families and individuals across the board. So. Um, in my own personal assessment, I hope that that's a conversation that continues to move forward to increase that kind of access. Let me ask, I, I can't help but think, you know, regardless of whether it's printed packets or uh, if it's distance learning, you're inevitably going to have an achievement gap that occurs just because students aren't in a classroom, ones who might need a little bit extra attention and um, sort of prompting to get their assignments in on time or or a little bit additional help on this particular subject, they might not have that same sort of attention through doing these packets at home or the distance learning. Um, have there been any considerations given for providing additional resources um, for uh, next year's academic year so that we can help bolster the efforts of any kids who, again, maybe through no fault of their own, fell a little bit behind or needed a little bit or need a little bit additional support um, to kind of close that achievement gap? Or is that something that would be handled at the individual school and classroom level? Yeah, I think prior to even getting to next year, I think there's been a lot of conversation about what a summer learning and summer enrichment going to look like and remediation. Um, you know, as soon as we can define like what summer actually is and what months that will happen. Um, but there's definitely conversation even from the district in terms of how we can support that to help um, to that point of making sure that we're able to provide students with some additional things that they may have lost through these months. You know, Stephen, if I, if I can also add to this, I mean, I think your point about the need for, uh, you know, broadband access to internet, um, generally speaking, you know, that, that in itself has to continue to be the conversation at, at, at a higher level. And we, we got to continue to push uh, on, our, on our friends at the Fed level to, to really have them think about, you know, a, a federal commitment to provide free broadband access and a, laptop, and a laptop for every student in America. Like that should be the baseline at this point in terms of the commitment that's made at the federal level um, during this time. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I bring that up to talk about the CARES Act piece, uh, largely because we know <clears throat> that there has been uh, clear um, you know, clear commitments made federally, financially to stabilize our systems. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, I think based off of the projections, and I know we're gonna get to I think, some of these numbers, you know, trying to make sure that we are taking care of this achievement gap, it's going to take, uh, you know, commitment from our federal partners uh, to provide the funds necessary to allow for extra supports to be given. Because based off of some of the preliminary, you know, um, I think assessments about where our budgets will be based off of the way that we deal with our tax, for our, the way in which we fund education right now, largely through tax dollars, you know, I think schools are going to have to make hard decisions to simply be able to keep the, 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 the human capital in their buildings today. And so being able to think about how do you even add to it to be able to take care of like you know those are the conversations and i'm glad you're bringing it up that we need to make sure that we're speaking out loud about 
and making sure our federal partners, if there is going to be another allocation of dollars uh, to the K-12 system, that we're asking for more monies for specifically uh, vulnerable young people. And so whatever we want to call it, an, an equitable fund, I, you know, I'm not really sure, but let's, let's make sure that we continue to have that conversation and, and bring up the, the needs of our vulnerable young people. So in that same vein, uh, I'm really interested in digging deeper on the funding for schools. Currently, there's a formula utilized at the state level, the MFP formula, which determines uh, how much money is allocated per student for their education throughout the state. Um, I'd be curious how that level of funding is going to um, be projected out and and what we anticipate those levels will be like in the future considering so much of our economy is based on tourism so much of our economy is based on oil and gas inevitably we're going to have uh, a shortfall in revenues so do y'all have any idea at this point exactly um how the mfp formula might be impacted and um as a second question what kind of support we would need either from the state or from the federal government as part of an additional stimulus bill to kind of fund that gap so that our students can continue to have a first-class education? Sure. Um, I'll take an initial stab at it and then let Ethan fill in the gaps. Um, so when looking at MFP um, and specifically like the local revenue component, like everybody else, we've anticipated a decline in sales tax revenue. And so I think the initial projection was around 70% decline in sales tax uh, for the four months of March through June. And then they were looking at about a 30% decline over the 12 months of July 2020 through June 2021, which is next fiscal year. Um, additionally, a decline in the ad valorem uh, revenues. One, because delay in people being able to pay their uh, property taxes due to job loss. And then also just the values of properties as well as even Airbnbs declining revenue. Um, and so taking that into consideration, um, our finance department has been communicating and having conversations with both the school years and CFOs and meeting with them to really talk about and kind of strategize um, as well as prepare for all of this to come, um, knowing, knowing all of this, right? And um, we consistently, based on financial compliance with our schools, um, understand and look at their at their audit and each quarter their long-term stability or their fund balance to understand like how much money they have um, day to day and so with that um, what we know is like we are really pushing our schools because they do have healthy fund balances as we require like a 10 percent to begin to to utilize that right um, and so also thinking about some suggestions that have come out from our cf from our finance uh, team is also just them conserving cash reducing spending and then just really planning to be lean for a few years before we get back to where we were. Um, and I think these are ongoing conversations. And again, as a district trying to convene and strategize as a whole, I know right now too, there's still the focus on, we have schools that have contracted with vendors. Um, and so they are still being, you know, good stewards of their public funds by paying those vendors that they have contacts with in terms of like just supporting local and small businesses. Um, but we also, again, like I said, have, are continuing to have conversations with those CFOs about conserving cash and also being able to use this, you know, that's why they create a fund balance. They have those balances um, to be able to go into those pots and that we'll make sure that we're understanding when we look at it from the financial compliance standpoint. Yeah, I, I think that, first of all, I think Dr. Peterson just did an excellent job of, of taking us through, um, you know, what the projections will look like. Um, the truth of the matter is, Stephen, the problem that we're having is that we don't know largely because there's no vaccine. And so the, the truth of the matter is we won't be whole um, in terms of, you know, figuring out what the number looks like because I, you know, I think we assume that this will be a three to five year battle because um, even after you get the vaccine, you know, there's no way to say that we're going to go back to normal social types of behaviors and that people will be wanting to fly to New Orleans who had one of the highest cases of COVID. And so, you know, I, I'm not, I think the problem that we're going to have is that projecting it is difficult. 
Um, and I think, you know, I think you could it's easily say hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. And I think our schools are trying to figure out what the answers are. Um, and I think our, our departments are doing an excellent job of being able to project out the fear that I think we should definitely be thinking about is that, you know, so goes, you know, how New Orleans goes, so goes the state of Louisiana, particularly around our economy. And so we know that we play a huge role uh, in what that looks like. And so, you know, we're definitely, um, you know, being cognizant of that truth and trying to be as conservative as, as we can. But we're, we're trying to put some numbers to it because we will, I think, federally need to ask for you know, deeper relief when it comes to being able to, again, protect our most vulnerable, not exacerbate the achievement gap that currently exists, and all those things that we know uh, is needed in this moment. No, I think you're absolutely right. And it's, at this point, we're de- dealing very much with the personal tragedy, the human tragedy, and, that, and a health crisis. But what you're alluding to is a long-term economic crisis um, that most likely will be uh, a national and global recession, if not depression. And the financial fallout from that is, is going to be significant, to put it mildly. And um, I think, you know, the state of Louisiana, as well as a lot of states uh, around the country, are going to have to get very creative and very lean in terms of how they operate themselves. And I, I also tend to believe that the federal government's going to have to have um, some additional uh, input and stimulus to try to help buoy up the economy. But um, I think three to five years of uh, an economic recovery is is a very safe bet at this point from what we're seeing. Kind of in, in a similar sort of thought process for me is, again, individuals are, are dealing with the human tragedy. Obviously, um, a lot of families have struggled uh, with sick family members or, or even the passing of some of their friends and family. And, um, and then beyond that, if we're facing massive unemployment, which we are, if we're fa- facing uh, economic hardship for families, are there going to be opportunities or efforts to step up um, mental health resources within our public schools to help make sure that kids have um, some stability and opportunities to uh, work through and cope with everything that we'll be dealing with over the next few years. Um, because I, I can't think, I know certainly after Hurricane Katrina, after the VP uh, oil spill, efforts were made to step up healthcare in different school districts around uh, around Louisiana and around the greater New Orleans region. And I think this very much fits into that same vein where we're going to have to provide for the mental health and well-being of our kids because they might have more challenging home lives than they would have had prior to this happening. So is any consideration at this point uh, being given to how we properly resource um, schools to be able to deal with those sorts of issues? Yeah, I think the answer is, is certainly, um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion at the system level about how we're able to provide across our, our, our full spectrum of, of schools, supports around mental health and counseling. Uh, you know, I think you did an excellent job of talking about the problem. You know, uh, Stephen, I will admit um, in this moment that I am actually COVID-19 positive. Um, I am day 11 at this point. And so uh, when you talk about the feeling of what it means, uh, particularly for our families and young people, you know, the isolation, um, the death that's taking place, and then the, the economic um, you know, trouble, it's definitely a three-pronged problem um, that we're definitely trying to fight and have to deal with. And, you know, the hard part in this moment is trying to figure out how can we continue to do our telehealth work. And so even thinking about how can we get telemental health in this moment to support our young people. And I think this will be a part of the, the next wave of ask. Um, whether that is with the, the, the governor's, um, you know, monies that he has available based off of the CARES Act or, or otherwise. I know that there's thoughts about how can we put and implement a real thoughtful, um, you know, uh, support around counseling for young people, families, and educators across the board uh, because we are all dealing with the loss of life and 
uh, and, and, you know, our young people are so resilient, uh, but they are also dealing with, you know, like I think I talked about it earlier, the lack of norms. You know, you're not in a classroom in the morning uh, being with your peers. I mean, you're with adults, and I know you love your adults, but sometimes you just want to be with kids. And, uh, and so there's def definitely that truth. Um, you have vulnerable families who are living in situations where there are several people in a household and those several people in a household, some of which may be sick. And so they're watching tragedy happen and then they're doing, having to watch it in an, in an isolated state. And so, you, you know, you're having funerals where you're having less than 10 people available to, to attend. And so like, this is definitely a moment where uh, I think we agree wholeheartedly at the district level and schools are definitely thinking about how to support uh, our young people, even now in this moment, I think mental health has become more of a thing. And so, you know, I just want to say very quickly, if you are doing uh, joyful things on social media, thank you. We love you. We appreciate it. Uh, because staying healthy is not just a, a physical thing in this moment. It's also largely a mental thing uh, with the isolation pieces that's, that's happening. But I'm sure Dr. Peterson could talk more about uh, what's happening uh, on the school to school basis, but the answer at the system wide level, I know Superintendent Lewis and and others uh, from other districts are definitely thinking about how we are able to provide these supports in a systematic way. Yeah, and I think to add on to that, you know, I think we also have to begin to look at mental health as a basic need as well, right? So like food and housing and mental health, like we really need to begin to think about it in that vein. Um, and specifically at a time of crisis in which we're in. Um, and so this is also where we have to, to push on. Um, schools need additional support from both city and community agencies uh, to expand the resources that are available for that. Um, again, for the mental health and support, not only of students and families, but also we also have to be realistic and talk about the staff at the school too, who are also struggling um, with their colleagues passing and things like that. Um, so I think it's, a, it's definitely an effort that needs a coordinated effort, um, not only with the schools, but also just in terms of city and community agency. Um, as it relates to at the district, last Friday, we sent out a survey around um, getting some better understanding of just the student and family need, mental health needs during the time. And primary ads from the schools around mental health right now have been included as like training on how to provide, provide um, therapy on telehealth. Um, additional capacity just to help reach out and check on families by phone. Um, you know, this is something that they used to be able to do checks in, you know, picking up kids from carpool and coming into the office, that type of thing that now are going to have to be done by the phone. So just additional support there. Um, training on crisis and grief response, given the number of deaths and just trauma. And then also just additional access to providers who are also taking new clients through telehealth to get their kids connected and their families connected pretty quickly. Um, so you do see, you know, again, as the, dist at the district, us trying to understand these needs, we, and schools are asking for additional support. Um, and there are also schools that are continuing to um, just ramp up other efforts that they've already had in place. I know uh, KIF New Orleans, for example, has a clinical team. They have a mental health hotline that has uh, 12 different counselors working to support their families um, during this time. And we have some other schools and networks that are doing the same. Um, again, the mental health conversation and component um, has been there in schools. It's just now being able to now uh, increase those efforts. And again, that's through the support of city and community agencies that we really need to help to support our schools in this time. Let me ask, you know, there's several topics, obviously, that we've discussed that I've brought up. Um, I'd be curious to see kind of within your, within your minds, what are y'all talking about with your peers and colleagues that are significant issues that uh, the public should be made, that the public should be made aware of and that as a community, we need to be more proactive about um, discussing and trying to figure out a solution. Are there any topics out there like that? Yeah, I think the first one that comes to mind um, when I thought about this question is, you know, we we see on the news the impact of COVID-19 in terms of like how many cases and how many deaths. Um, and the reality is like, when we look at that death toll, there's never like the correlating number of like how many have to do with like teachers and coaches. Um, and so really thinking about, you know, kids when, when they finally do get back 
to school? Um, how many kids may not see their favorite teacher or have their coach anymore? Um, and so really thinking about that impact um, and how we begin to have conversations and solves for that um, and going back to the mental health component and the support and just wraparound services that are going to need to be able to be there again, not only during school time, but after school and even in this kind of like time that we're in now of having those conversations and having um, just empathy for our, for our students and families. And again, and our, and our teachers who have lost colleagues through this. Um, I think the other piece to that is, um, you know, we talk about this time and how much uh, the instructional time that's been lost and what's going to be needed next year. How does that impact next year? Um, as well as like the additional mental health supports and all of that. Um, but also understanding that like with all of that, um, all of those additional supports that are going to be needed in schools. I think the other part is when we go back to the money piece, right, that decline in the sales tax revenue and all of that on school funding, that's going to direct, when we talk about schools needing to be lean, usually lean means human capital. And so that also means like taking out potentially some of these positions. They're not, they may not be able to pay for those positions that they once had. Um, not even being able to add more, as we know, and we've talked about even in this conversation, what is additionally needed in schools at this point. Um, and so even when we talk about the funding piece, understanding that this is the time where we need more funding, if not than any, for human capital, for all of the solves that we're going to have to put in place for our students, um, be it, again, instructional supports or mental health supports, or just in general, right, just having additional people in the building to support our kids and the, just the impact of this on staffing structures and then that correlation between how it's going to feel inside of schools and the school culture. I think are things that I think about. You know, um, you know, Dr. Peterson is brilliant. And I think just to build upon what she's talking about, um, you know, our public school systems in America, you know, has an oversized leadership role in our communities with an under-resourced support system. You know, our schools provide food for young people, shelter during the day for those who are homeless, you know, internet, healthcare, in addition to, you know, expected physical, behavioral, and academic learning experiences. And so, you know, when I think about, you know, what and how our schools are going to continue to need to be able to do all of these things, and, and while also not being funded at the level that they needed to be funded previously. And then we're going to deal with, you know, the recession. I think there's definitely uh, the possibility of having students, you know, be lost in the cracks. Um, and I, I want to acknowledge that, you know, the our fund, our feeding program, you know, that it was it was thoughtfully done in that, you know, we have not acknowledged the fact that we have students who are disconnected from school. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we fed all students, if they're disconnected or not, uh, during this time. And I think that is when we talk about, you know, our disconnected students, um, you know, those students, our most vulnerable students, I think we're going to have to think about ways to be creative around supporting them in virtual settings uh, as we think about how we reintegrate schools. You know, the reintegration of schools is going to be interesting uh, to say the least because if there's a flare-up that happens again and then you reintegrate it and now you got to figure out how you possibly you know for safety purposes while there is no vaccine you know how do you make sure families are safe and feel safe in those young people and so thinking about how we are able to provide tutors for every vulnerable student in our public you know in our, in our public school system may be very thoughtful um, because, you know, internet and computer access is the baseline, but it's not enough. We know it. And to expect those young people who are struggling within the four walls to then go home and to get on the internet uh, and to access these online portals and to expect them to do better uh, at home is absurd. And so we have to think about how we may be able to reallocate some of our bus drivers or some of our educational um, assistance in ways that may offer tutoring for young people uh, from vulnerable backgrounds, but be creative. Um, that is what's keeping me up is trying to figure out how do we not lose folks in this moment and understanding that our public school system was already 
um, you know, doing everything that it could to take care of young people. And now we're going to be without the same amount of funding to do that, but expected to take care of our vulnerable folks in this moment of crises. Um, definitely, uh, definitely keeping me up at night. So just like if I could add even just to, um, to what Ethan said as it related to like the feeding piece, um, to give context there, since the since March 16th, we've served approximately 421,000 meals uh, and counting uh, to students in Orleans Parish. Um, and so, just again to re reiterate the fact that he he talked about just the, the importance of the nucleus that the school provides, whether it's the shelter, it's the food, um, to get the, to hear that number 421,000 meals, right? Um, those are our students and families, and and so I think it just reaffirms the nuclear. Um, importance of the school and all that the school can provide. That's an, a, a truly astounding number and an amazing testament to the work that you do. Um, obviously, this has been a, a bit of a, a sobering, heavy conversation, and I think it's difficult to have um, very real conversations without it feeling this sort of way. But the other thing that comes from this is uh, an opportunity for positive things, to remake things in a better way, and to have a vision for what the future can hold. And, um, and so I would ask each of you, as we, we kind of wrap up our conversation, what would be your final words of encouragement for families and kids? And, and related to that, what would be your vision for what we could hopefully uh, take out of this event as a positive moving forward? So I would just, um, I think, say that I, you know that there is definitely hope to be had around personalization of of learning um, and being able to provide learning outside of schools for all young people and so you know if we have a hurricane and we need to make sure that we're able to do distance learning that we're able to do that if 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 we have an, an out of school suspension for some reason um, that those young people can continue to learn. And <laughs> there's nothing that's stopping that anymore based off of the work that we're trying to do now. And so, you know, being able to personalize and allow for young people to stay connected, if that's the bare minimum that we're able to do, you know, I think we're better for it. Um, but I, I will also acknowledge that, you know, I think our young people will be light years ahead in terms of their ability to use all these platforms and Zoom and other things that they're doing, Google Classroom, um, in ways that will definitely benefit them uh, in, in years to come. And so uh, definitely encouraged by that. And then I think the last thing I, I just I need to say is that, um, you know, people are isolated. And so you don't know what people are dealing with. Uh, even if you're texting them, you're not really able to, to know what's happening with them. And so just tell someone that you love them, remind them that they're important to you um, and that you're thinking about them in real ways uh, and, and just continue to love out loud. That's really, really important in this moment. Yeah, I think um, as an educator, when you choose this path, uh, you don't, it's not an opt-in and opt-out. You don't get to choose when you're going to be an educator and when you, when you don't. Um, the same way that education, you know, although school might end for the summer or school might end for a day, um, an educator, you are an educator 24-7. And so, you know, to our students and families, um, you know, who still may have questions or trying to figure out what's next, um, just know that there are a lot of educators working 24-7 to find answers and solves. Um, and it's not just because we are unable to, to have the face to face or the personal connection um, that everyone's heart is not still thinking about their kids um, and what's best for their kids and their families. Um, and so I think just knowing that you have the support of a lot of educators really trying to come up with solves for everything. And I truly believe we will get there, right? There, in time, we will definitely get there. As it relates to like what will come out of this, I think we have some real conversations to be had about what does education look like next? How do we move forward, you know, no longer probably paper-based, right? Like, you know, we're 2020 now. And so I think it's important for us to really begin to rethink the idea of a common school that, you know, eons ago, um, we have a lot of, of evolution to occur, both in the schoolhouse, also our teacher preparation programs as well. 
um, to be able to prepare those that are getting ready to enter the field uh, for distance learning or for new things they don't necessarily even see yet. So I think it's just a, a conversation that needs to continue to have on various levels about what does education really look like moving forward um, and how do we ensure that no matter where you are, what you have access to, um, how do we begin to think about basic needs as, again, we talked about mental health, but basic needs is even just like technology and access to uh, devices, um, but then also just basic computer literacy skills. So I think we just have a, a larger conversation to have about, about education moving forward. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. Thank you, Mr. Ashley, for joining us and um, certainly providing uh, some truly thoughtful uh, remarks. And most importantly, thank you for your leadership in these trying times. It's, uh, it's, it's a positive reinforcement to know that we have individuals and leaders like yourselves taking on the mantle of education and trying to provide um, that cornerstone and foundational component for our communities. And uh, Ethan, on a personal note, good luck with your uh, own personal battle with COVID-19. And uh, we certainly appreciate your time and energy in joining us today and uh, sharing some of your wisdom with us. So thank you both so much. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you for thank your leadership. You, Please note that following this conversation, Governor John Bell Edwards did in fact extend school closures until the end of the academic school year. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you'd like to download this episode or see some of our other episodes, please visit www.norleypodcast.com. Additionally, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Our pinnacle sponsor is Entergy. Our legacy of leadership sponsors are Atmos and Shelmet Refining. Our impact sponsor is Jones Walker. Our support sponsors are Hancock Whitney and Gamble Communications. Our stakeholder sponsors are LCMC Health, Iberia Bank, Metairie Bank, the Mira Foundation, and the Port of New Orleans. And our recognized partner is GNO Inc.